Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Hello, thank you for tuning in. This is a show that looks at sport beyond the boundary. And today we have a very special edition. We're going to be focusing in on the world of horses. And one of my guests, Trevor Marmalade, famous comedian, and you might know him from the footy show, has co-authored a book about some of the best racetracks around Australia. Oh, look, it's interesting. I mean... um I mean, the, probably, you know, the, the good thing as we went into writing the book was to find that, you know, obviously uh, there's only one way of running a race. You know, you, you line them up at the start and you send them to the winning post. But the way it's done everywhere is so different. It's a fascinating book, a beautiful coffee table style book full of uh, amazing pictures, but also incredible information about uh, some of those famous tracks across the world. We're also going to look at the world of equestrian today. Multiple Olympian Mary Hannah will be along for a chat. Among the topics she talks about includes the idea of why equestrian perhaps isn't isn't as mainstream as what it could be. So I think that we, we probably just need to get better PR people within our sport to promote it because I really think it is wonderful to watch uh, the harmony between the horse and the rider and um, it can be you know, really a beautiful thing to watch a well-trained horse with some wonderful music accompanying it to a well-choreographed test. Um, I think we do have something really good to offer to the public and maybe we just need to get some better PR people in there to promote that. Plenty to come in the next half hour. hope you can stay listening and don't forget you can find us on iTunes as well where you can download uh, about 50 or so episodes of 110% looking at various sports topics over the last couple of years with some really fascinating uh, guests and indeed if you just search uh, 110% with Barry Nichols on your search engine you will find us at the Grandstand site. Hope you can stay with us. ABC Cricket Magazine edited by Jim Maxwell contains everything you need to know about the Ashes and the season ahead. With in-depth player profiles, a dedicated statistics section, expert analysis and previews of all the action. Inside this issue there's an exclusive interview with Shane Warne, a giant poster of Steve Smith and Stuart Broad and your chance to win a cricket bat Signed by the Australian team. A must for every cricket fan. ABC Cricket Magazine is available from ABC shops, centres and newsagents. This is 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Each weekend thousands of punters go to racetracks to drink, to eat, to be seen and some even bet on the horses. It's a significant part of our culture as well as many others around the world. Trevor Marmalade, who's a comedian that's well-known, has co-authored a book with former BBC presenter Jim McGrath. And Trevor's uh, knowledge of the GGs is enormous. Trevor, hello. Oh, thanks for having me on. This love affair with the track, how did it begin? Uh, oh, look, uh, at a very young age, I uh, started going uh, with a bunch of mates when we were at high school and uh, have been following it ever since, to be honest. But uh, be right, as, as part of the culture, I think uh, the thoroughbred industry and its you know, associated industries is the third largest employer in the, the country. Yeah. It, it's incredible, isn't it, when you think of it on, on that scale. What about for you? What's the thrill of going to the track? Oh well, uh, to me, there's no thrill like backing a winner. Of course, I mean we got, you know, we got to get there and uh, lash out. But uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, what is the enduring thing about uh, horse racing is the, the champion horse. Yeah, of which, of course, we have been blessed of recent times with uh, with Black Caviar. Just one uh, one to mention. 
Uh, look, you've, uh, as I said, you've written this book. Uh, did you, I mean, was it part of the gig to actually go around to many of these racetracks or had you seen them already? Uh, well, look, as far as the Australian tracks are concerned, I've been to most of those and been to quite a number overseas. And uh, my co-author, Jim McGrath, obviously uh, has spent a lifetime in the game uh, as a race caller and, uh, you know, travelled the world calling races. And uh, he, you know, obviously called all of the races, you know, at all the tracks in uh, the UK and many in France and across Europe. And he spent a long time as the uh, head race caller in Hong Kong, so he knows the Asian racing scene really well and been to you know, many of the tracks there. So between the two of us, we had sort of been you know, to, to all of the major tracks and uh, a great deal of the uh, 270 tracks in the book. The Aussie tracks, how do they compare with some of the major ones overseas? Oh, look, it's interesting. I mean, um, I mean, the, probably, you know, the, the good thing as we went into writing the book was to find that, you know, obviously uh, there's only one way of running a race. You know, you, you line them up at the start and you send them to the winning post. But the way it's done everywhere is so different. I mean, and uh, we talk about, you know, the lack of stayers uh, in Australia uh, but it sort of it, it does actually come down to the tracks uh, throughout the UK. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon to find that the length of the home straight can be half a mile. So uh, horses there are winding up a long way from home. Whereas Australia is a, a land of sweeping bends and short home straights. I mean, the average home, length of the home straight in Australia is somewhere between you know 350 and 450 metres, which is very short in uh, the context of world racing. So we we need horses here that you know that can hold can hold up and then sprint home because you can't really be making a, a wide run coming to the turn when you have a, a sweeping bend, which leads to a short straight. So uh, it, it, the way we race in Australia is a product of our tracks, which is strange you know, to, to think when you, know, you consider how much land we had to build the tracks on. Looking at your book, um, the, you've got some about the history of the tracks. You've also got the feature races and some beautiful photos uh, of the tracks themselves and also some of the horses that have done well. I mean, what did you learn about whether it be the history of Australia or other parts of the world by putting this book together? Oh, look, there was no, no end of things to learn. I mean, you know, for a start, I spent uh, a long time uh, sitting down with uh, Jim McGrath and, uh, and picking his brain for all his knowledge of uh, all of the tracks he's been to. But um, what did I learn? Well, look, I suppose you, every time you uh, start researching uh, a, a place, you, you learn about you know, the racing there. And, uh, I mean, t for me, one of the biggest surprises was uh, South America. I mean, I was sort of, you know, hadn't been looking forward to doing the South American section because, I mean, the racing there is very foreign to me. But I uh, found that... Uh, most uh, a lot of the tracks and especially the major tracks right through uh, throughout South America uh, were built between the 1920s and the 1950s, and they were they were built by famous uh, they were designed by famous architects, and some of them you know took 10, 15 years to build to the uh, architect specifications, and a lot of these are, are world heritage landmark sites, and uh, I, I really didn't know like for instance uh, Club Hippico uh, in Chile is just uh, one of the most spectacular. Yeah, you know, courses in the world, and uh, when you see the photos of it, you know. Trevor Marmalade, uh, my guest, we're talking about uh, his book. It's, uh, as I said, it's a beautiful book. It's called Great Racetracks of the World. He's co-authored it with Jim McGrath, former BBC presenter. Chantilly Racecourse looks interesting, Trevor. About 50 kilometres from Paris. So it's got like a big, it's not quite a castle, but a, a mansion. Well, it is actually a castle. 
uh, I can say the, uh, the, uh, the 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 stables there is actually a palace built for horses in the uh, in the early I think seventeen sixteen it was built by the Prince de Conde who was uh, you know, uh, the, an heir of the uh, the French royal family at the time and he was convinced that uh, he was uh, going to return in the afterlife as a horse so uh, he had uh, uh, stables built which were virtually and literally a palace for horses and the chateau at uh, Chantilly there in France uh, runs right along the back straight and in fact the course was built uh, around uh, the chateau there the La Grande Ecurie the Grand Stables as it were and uh, it is literally a palace what is it about the dirt tracks too that uh, that make a, a, a track or that the culture of a turf club or a track different well, look, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I mean, American racing is uh, all dirt track racing uh, in general. Well, they're all dirt tracks. Uh, many of them have, uh, you know, you know uh, turf tracks as well, which be- is becoming more popular in American turf racing. But uh, I think uh, basically American racing started in defiance uh, of the English. Uh, the English uh, generally ran their racetracks uh, right-handed and on turf, and the Americans decided they were going to run left-handed on dirt. And uh, and to that end, I mean, all the tracks in America were constructed from scratch, whereas you find in England there's a, there's a lot to go through in the course characteristics because uh, the tracks were laid out just on the existing land, whereas uh, in America, of course, uh, the, the tracks were all constructed, and basically you have the model of the the classic oval which is a one mile dirt oval with a seven furlong inner track and that's sort of the story of american courses with with a few exceptions i'm just looking at the course it's saint moritz in switzerland were there were there any uh, places where look you, you didn't think there would be a horse track yet lo and behold <laughs> there was well it just shows anywhere you can uh, you can settle up a horse you can run a race yeah they do run uh, a meeting there they run uh, over three weekends uh, at some uh, saint moritz and it's uh, they run on ice or on the snow around the frozen lake at uh, St Moritz there, and uh, it's actually uh, I think the the major race there is actually a Group Two race I believe like it's uh, they run under official rules, but of course it's uh, it's actually very dangerous and uh, the horses wear spiked uh, plates on their hooves uh, so they can uh, maintain their grip in the snow. But and uh, while it makes it a bit safer for the horses, it uh, certainly doesn't help a, a fallen jockey who's uh, caught up in the trample trying to avoid the spikes as well as the, as the hooves but uh, but that is a spectacular meeting and uh, and certainly yeah uh, while not one for the rank and file it was uh, uh, definitely worth including a little bit different and the nature of regional uh, tracks as opposed to metro tracks are we able to get to the bottom of that uh in in what respect i just the way they might be different you know i imagine a bush you know, a bush race track would be quite different to, to metro track. Oh, obviously, uh, you find uh, in all jurisdictions, uh, the further you go from the, you know, the capital centres, uh, the more relaxed uh, you know, racing becomes, uh, uh, more less formal. But, uh, you know, as uh, having said that, I mean, looking at Australia, I mean, you know, racing's built around the grand tradition of the cup. You know, every town, every course, every city has its local cup race, which is you know the the main race on uh, on the calendar. And you find you know right throughout Australia, even the smallest centres uh, when they have their cup day, you know it, it's a it's a local day off for the town. 
Trevor, I'm just uh, having a look at Tokyo here. I didn't realise that there could be crowds of in excess of 200,000 people uh, scanning one photo, just a, a, a sea of people. Have you had the chance to go to the races in Japan? Uh, yeah, no, I had uh, the pleasure of uh, attending the Japan Cup uh, back in 2003, and it's... Uh, and it's it's unbelievable. I mean, uh, Japan racing was a backwater until probably the mid seventies, and uh, the authorities in Japan decided that if they were going to do it, or if they were going to maintain racing on any level, that they you know, that they were going to actually go into it and you know, and provide world class racing. And uh, basically, I mean, for a period of probably ten or twenty years there, if you wanted to find uh, an English Derby winner or a Kentucky Derby winner, uh, the place to be looking would be on a Japanese stud farm because they spent uh, the best part of two decades employing the absolute top-notch classic bloodlines into Japan to stand, you know, and, uh, and because of that, they now produce the best stayers in the world. Your knowledge is astounding there, Trevor. I'm, uh, I'm very impressed, um, and it is a wonderful book. Look, before we let you go, I've got to play you this, because it's, it's from the, the footy show. Just hold on. What do you call a 30-year-old woman in a Collingwood jumper? What? Nana. <laughs> um, let me see. Two Collingwood supporters in a car without any music. Who is driving? The policeman. <laughs> So they somewhat unfairly got you to read those out, even though you're a North Melbourne supporter. You don't have a Frio or West Coast joke, do you? Uh, there we go. Um, <laughs> there we go. Oh, well, look, you know, we've had a lot of fun with Collingwood over the years. Uh, my Probably my favourite Collingwood one was this one. Uh, uh, a moron, a dull bulger, and a Collingwood supporter walk into a bar. And that was just the first bloke. <laughs> all right, Trevor, poor O'Colling would have been picked up. Look, thank you. Look, well done on the book, and thanks a lot for relating all that. You've obviously got an incredible knowledge about it, and I really appreciate it. Oh, well, look, if, if I haven't by now, I've spent uh, a couple of years working on this. If some of it hasn't sunk in by now, I'd have no hope. Trevor Marmalade there talking about his book on the best racetracks around the world. My brother's room was in Aladdin's cave of cheap electrics. He had a Hornby Dublo railway set. Australiana and growing up in the 1960s are just some of the topics in the range of audiobooks in ABC shops. There's the best Australian bush stories by Jim Haynes, Tom Thompson, growing up in the 60s, and detective stories, MC Beaton's Agatha Raisin and the Wellspring of Death. All audiobooks are available from ABC shops, centres and shop online. Have you ever wondered how much of your life was predetermined by something that you were born to do? My next guest has, and it's been in the research of her lifelong connection with horses, one that's led her to represent Australia at four Olympic Games and three World Equestrian Games, that she's learned so much more about her mother's influence. Mary Hannah is my guest's name. She's written a book about her life. It's called A Long Rain, An Equestrian Journey. Mary, hello. Hello, Barry. Your original aim was to write about a what a lifelong love story, beginning with your mum meeting a German naval officer who would later captain the Cormorant, the ship responsible for Australia's worst naval disaster. Of course, the sinking the HMA Sydney, a big memorial at Geraldton. There, what changed? Uh, yes, it's. Um, I, I know it's probably a subject that a lot of people in Western Australia are quite aware of. Um, it was an extraordinary um, way that she came to meet. Um, Theodore Detmers, who turned out to be the captain of the Corman. She was a young girl. She was only 17. And um, he was on a ship called the Colm that came into Melbourne. And she, um, through connections of her 
family came to meet him and fell in love with him when she was 17. And uh, a, a love story developed that, that was sort of told to me almost like a family myth throughout my life um, and to my sisters. And, and it became something that fascinated me and I wanted to know a lot more about it. I spent a lot of time researching it to try and write that story. But, but uh, you haven't. I didn't write the story of her in the uh, her story in the end because I felt that there were many gaps. Um, as I said, it was a bit of a family myth. There was nothing written down until I finally found a letter in Germany um, by chance that was written by him to my mother, by Theodore Demers to my mother. But um, in the end, I felt that I had to. We had a lot of elements of the story, um, but I had to fill in too many gaps. So I threaded that story through my own story because it was, it was given to me in little instalments throughout my life and my fascination with that story remained. And of course, after my mother was gone, you always wished that you'd ask more questions and found out more detail, but, but you don't think of that at the time. Your mother was obviously a key influence. Can you tell us a bit about your mum? Uh, yes, yeah, she she was a, an amazing woman. She had a lot of drive, she had a lot of go. She was a feisty sort of character, um, very determined, liked to do things her way. Um, she was totally, as we all are, my, uh, as I'm, I'm certainly obsessed with horses and I think three of my sisters are, um, she was very, very keen on, on horses all her life. Um, she wasn't born into a horsey family as I was, but she... Um, developed that passion and then once she'd sort of bitten with the bug, that's all she used to plan her life around basically was riding, hunting, competing, uh, racing horses. She just loved every aspect of it. What about for you? Uh, Sorry, so you keep going, Mary. Oh, and she, I was just going to say she passed that um, burning passion for the horses on to her children and particularly to me. (laughs) At what age did you think... Look, this is going to be something I'm in for the long haul with horses. Um, look, I, it never really came on to me in just one moment. Um, we were all put on horses since we're, before we could remember, virtually in nappies, I imagine. Um, and riding horses was always part of our everyday life because we lived on a country property down in the Western District of Victoria. Um, so horses were just so much part of our life that it was just something that, that was always there. Um, I was very obliging, of course, when my mother would cut us off to shows and things because I loved doing it, and um, it, was all, it was just... I, I can't imagine any time in my life where I, I could be without horses. I remember once I went on a holiday to, um, to London and around Europe um, for a period of time, and I would always search out horses wherever I went because I missed them so much. I just can't bear to be apart from them. That, yeah, well, that's quite revealing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you're just with us, Mary Hannah, my guest. Mary is Australian equestrian competitor at the Olympic Games, four Olympic Games. Uh, she's written a book called A Long Rain, An Equestrian Journey. Um, what's the sort of pressure you face as a, a competitor at the Olympics? Your first one was at Atlanta in 1996. I mean, what, t- Tell us, what was it like when you first represented Australia at the Games? Oh, look, I think the first Olympics I did was certainly the most exciting and, you know, it, it, it is a first and it's it's quite an addictive thing once you start getting involved in that whole Olympic scene. Um, Atlanta was particularly wonderful for me because it was just a huge adventure, of course, being being there in, in America. Um, 
I travelled with my coach and mentor, Kira Kirkland. Um, I had a wonderful little horse who was very reliable and he put in a super performance there and we managed to get into the final. Uh, we had a personal best and we betted any of the competitors from Australia that had competed in dressage before us. So it was it was an all-round just fantastic experience. Um, and then, of course, as a result of that, I became completely addicted to going to Olympics. So then I just couldn't give that up. I had to give that idea up. And having done one Olympics, I immediately came home and set out on my campaign for the next one. How have the Olympic Games changed? Because we're talking about a period from 96 to 2012, uh, London, the last one you went to. Have you noticed any, any changes? Uh, yes, there are some changes. Um, in in my particular sport, uh, it's of course the the improvement and, and the standard. And I suppose this is in all sports that the standard has just been unbelievable in the way that it's skyrocketed. I mean, performances that were winning performances then wouldn't even rate a mention now. Um, so the standard of, of dressage has gone up, gone through the roof. Um, in general, I think the thing that I notice is uh, something that I discuss about my London experience. Um, social media and the media and the way they uh, interact with the um, competitors. Um, it's a very different world nowadays. Everything you do is uh, in the media. Um, every move you make, um, people can, can write things about competitors that aren't always particularly true and in the social media, and there's nothing that you can do about that. Um, you must increase the rivalry a bit if you've got people tweeting um, or Facebooking comments. Yes. Yeah, I think that whole aspect of it's sort of interesting. It it can be quite dis very distracting from competitors. Um, you have to sort of, and I think what I've learned from London is you have to put yourself in a bit of a cocoon uh, and separate yourself from all that. And just you know, you really need to focus on on your job of riding in your competition or in whatever competition you are in any sport, and not be affected by the media and anything that's written. Um, it can be very distracting and, and you make you lose focus on, on doing your best. We've seen some terrible fires in New South Wales and you've had your own experiences with bushfires on Ash Wednesday. Can you tell us about what happened? Um, it's a terrifying ordeal to be just a person with a fire approaching or with your family, let alone with a whole farm full of animals. Um, my main priority, I actually had was lucky enough to... Uh, on my way home from my job as a teacher then I dropped my daughter off with, with my sister so I didn't have to worry about her and was able to concentrate on the fire um, and looking after all my animals. We had 60 horses on the place at the time as the fire approached and the police came in an hour before and said to get out and, and I said, well, I'll just not because I've got all these animals. And um, People just turned up. Horse people are amazing. They just turned up from everywhere and took the horses and, and we had... Almost every horse removed off the property in a very short space of time through these marvellous people that saw the danger and came and helped us. We only had a few horses left in the end and uh, although all our stables started burning, we were able to get them out. But I actually consider myself very lucky because we managed to uh, save ourselves and all our animals uh, with no loss of life. Um, you know, buildings can be replaced and fencing can be rebuilt. Uh, but, you know, the, the loss of life is the thing that's most horrifying. And uh, although it was a terrible ordeal at the time and took a long time to recover from it and get going again in our business, um, I feel I was a lucky person that night, really, to survive it and keep everyone alive. Long time ago now, isn't it? Uh, so, yes, so, it so is. So we're talking about 83, aren't we? So 30 years yeah, ago. that's right. Yeah. 
Uh, look, this whole experience, uh, the reflection that you've, you would have gone through putting this book together, what, what do you think it, you've learned as a result? Um, oh, look, for me, it was, it was sort of a cathartic kind of experience because, um, as I mentioned before, London was a very different Olympics and I, had a, had a, I think anyone that goes to the Olympics afterwards, you sort of suffer a bit of a, a downer. You know, everything you do is leading up to this incredible moment in time and you concentrate yourself so fully on it that um, when it's over, it can, it can be quite a sort of bring in quite a, a low time afterwards. It's such an anticlimax. And um, I guess what I've learned is that I maybe during my life I focused too much um, just on those things. I've lost balance in my life in a way. Uh, I think my advice to, to people coming up who are highly competitive and, and sitting to compete in Olympics and, and make sport so important in their lives is to, it's important to keep a balance um, and not to make it just solely so important in your life that, you know, you've got to remember that family are important and um, there are other things in life apart from your obsessive sport. And, and to be, the trouble is to be good at, at any sport and at the highest level, you have to be quite obsessive about it. It's a double-edged um, sword, isn't it? It's a double-edged yeah, sword, yeah. it really is. Yeah. yeah, but you've got your eyes set on um, on Rio, haven't you? Two thousand sixteen. Yes. Well, I'm just you can't help it. I'm back for another round if I possibly can get there. So uh, I have a very nice new horse in Europe that uh, I'm going back to ride next year and train with. And still, I have my beautiful horse Sunset, who I rode in the London Olympics. Um, and so my aim will be to prepare those horses and hopefully come out at the end um, to be selected and, and do well, I hope, at the Rio Olympics. What's the secret, Mary, to keeping or putting equestrian events on the map a bit more? We, we tend to talk about them more likely when Olympics are on. Um, what do you think the key is to promoting it more? Um, well, I think one of the things that's developed more in recent years is um, an aspect of, of dressage that's very appealing to the public and I think that we, it's, a, it's a very nice thing to watch. That's the Kerr the event, which is uh, like a freestyle to music. It's a bit like in ice skating. You have a technical test that you do and then you have um, a, a more where the competitor can make their own choreography and it's accompanied by music and you can be creative. Um, and in Europe, they have used that to promote it more to the public, to the general public, very successfully. Um, it is it is a lot of fun to watch, and I think you don't have to know a lot about dressage to enjoy it. Um, and so I think that we we probably just ne need to get better PR people within our sport to promote it because I really think it is wonderful to watch uh, the harmony between the horse and the rider, and um, it can be you know really a beautiful thing to watch a well trained horse with some wonderful music accompanying it to a well choreographed test. Um, I think we do have something really good to offer to the public and maybe we just need to get some better PR people in there to promote that aspect of our sport. The book is called A Long Rain, An Equestrian Journey. It's about the life of Mary Hannah. Mary's uh, the author. Mary, thank you very much and good luck. Oh, it's a pleasure. Mm. Country Arts WA is bringing the award-winning production Scent Tales to regional WA. And we have tickets to give away to every show. A riveting tale of a sister's jealousy. <gasps> With audiences literally being given food for thought. Stay tuned this week for your chance to win passes to Scent Tales in Bunbury and Market River. For more information, head to abc.net.au forward slash southwestwa.
Well, there's always great excitement when there is an Ashes Test Series around, and while Australia's luck recently and its performance hasn't been that good, it's nice to reflect on some of the successes over the years. So let's head back to the very end of the Test match in 1974-75. It was at the Sydney Cricket Ground when Australia regained the Ashes. The first voice you'll hear is that of Alan McGilvray. Uh, here, here is Lily moving in and going in very quickly as he bowls to Willis and it's straight on the line. He's bowled him. He's out bowled. Willis is out. Bowled by Lily. It, it looked to be inevitable. But I pay full credit to Willis. He'll get a great hand from this crowd, I'm, I'm sure. This is the 10th over of the last 15 to be bowled. Mallet to Arnold, coming forward and caught. Yes, caught by Greg Chappell at short forward leg. And the Ashes are Australia's for the first time since 1971 when Ray Inningworth took them home. The last man out was Arnold, caught Greg Chappell. Bold Mallet for 14. Ashley Mallet wins the series for Australia and the Ashes with his 100th wicket in Test cricket. Mallet finishes with 4 for 21. Edrich remains not out 33. The last man out, Arnold caught Greg Chappell, bold mallet for 14. And there's the applause for John Edrich, as well as for the Australian team leaving the field. Edrich not out 33. 21 sundries. England all out for 228. Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Well, that's your lot for today. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You heard from Trevor Marmalade, who's co-authored a book on the best racetracks around the world. Also, uh, several-time Olympian Mary Hanna about the sport of equestrian. And we had a little bit of Ashes history at the very end. Some success in 1974-75. Don't forget, you can find us on iTunes if you'd like to listen to back episodes or indeed just search 110% with Barry Nichols in your search engine. It'll take you to the grandstand page and you'll be able to listen to it there. Have a good one. Talk to you next time. Barry Nichols giving it 110%.